Welcome to episode 13 of the Give Us Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. This episode, we have an extraordinary guest. He joined the Royal Marines when he was 22 years old. He passed out of training as the top recruit and as the best young officer was awarded the Royal Marines Sword of Honor. During his career, he was awarded the General Officer's Commanding Commendation for his fieldwork in Northern Ireland. At the height of the Falklands War, he was a rifle troop commander in charge of 32 men and was tasked with operating independently from his unit in no man's land. During the Falklands War, he was involved in a blue on blue. They said to him developing PTSD, which over time brought an end to his military career. He brought an old classic yacht with his wife, sailed off into the North Atlantic to help himself heal. He went on to start his own charity, The Mountain Way, which helps soldiers with PTSD. We are honoured to welcome Andy Shaw onto the podcast. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, Alex. Nice to see you. Um, and joining me um, again is our Give Us Time ambassador, Scotty Derrick. Hello. And Give Us Time managing director, Rupert Forrest. Um, so, um, Andy, do you just mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Do you mind just telling us about your childhood? My childhood? Um, how long have you got? Uh, all right, very briefly. Um, <laughs> very lucky, very privileged, I suppose, in many senses. Um, born in the Midlands into what you'd call a very successful middle class English family. Uh, dad was a company director in the family business. Um, went to six different schools. Two of them were boarding, one in the Midlands in North Staffordshire, the second one in Southern Ireland. Ended up in uh, Oban High School in Scotland. So I saw uh, probably a, a, quite a privileged uh, range of uh, education available in the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. Um, so I've got a good insight into how things were back then, if you like. This is the 50s and the 60s. Um, went to sea uh, in 1970 at the age of 16. Um, served in various capacities in the Merchant Navy and the fishing industry. Joined the Royal Marines in uh, 1976 at the age of 22. Uh, 20 years later, left at the age of 42. Yeah. Um, then went into uh, what I call the dream bubble, as you just alluded to, the mm. life on the, uh, the old yacht. Yeah. Uh, lived on board with uh, Shirley, my wife, my second wife, uh, for 18 years. Uh, ended up here in the Balearics. We were heading for the Caribbean, but officers and maps and that sort of thing. Anyway, <laughs> we did find this place and uh, and eventually came ashore because uh, that uh, way of life had run its course, if you like. Um, by that time, we had a nine-year-old son who couldn't fit his bunk anymore. So we came ashore here in Ibiza where we happened to be, and we've been here ever since. Oh, um, fantastic. 2012, I went back to the unit I uh, fought in, in in Northern Ireland and the Falklands, 4-5 commando. Uh, the invitation of the CO was a man I'd trained in the early 90s and gave this presentation to the unit uh, three times on my war and its effects. And that night after the final presentation in the officer's mess, uh, there was a queue of young lads who wanted to talk to me about their experiences in Af Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was really uh, when I realised you know, I had, I had a function to perform here. I could actually help these blokes. Mm. So that was a catalyst, 2012. Mm. Um, 2013, I dismantled my maritime security plans, which are highly ambitious and didn't go anywhere, and uh, and focused on uh, sorting the, the veterans out with PTSD. And by 2014, I'd found people who needed help and I'd found money to pay for it and, and began then. Um, and that leads up to today. Oh, fantastic. Well, that is already, I think, this is, as we've all already heard, this is going to be a very inter interesting podcast. So I just want to go back then to you were 16, no, 17 years old 
and you ran off to sea. What made you decide to run off to sea? What was the the thinking behind that? <laughs> Not a lot of thinking, to be honest. Um, I was 16. I, I think what it was, combination of things. Um, my mother's maiden name was Tyler. And I don't know if she's actually connected to the famous rebel Watt Tyler who came to a sticky end. But you know, there's, <laughs> there's a streak of that in her character and my grandfather. And, and I think I've got a bit of that, too. Um, so... I was rebelling pretty much from the first boarding school, which I started at the age of seven. And um, and I think that just set a trend, if you like. So by the time I'd reached open high school, uh, where I'd realised the Scottish um, educational syllabus was way advanced beyond the English and the Irish. Keep quiet, Scotty. Um, <laughs> it was a fact I was out of my depth. Uh, when we were running up to the, the O-level examinations, I had no confidence whatsoever. So I sat the only one I felt I had any chance in the English one and uh, and then left um but it's it's always a strange thing in life or maybe it's just a theme of my life rather than something that everybody experiences but there have always been doors that have opened and shut at critical times and uh on this occasion this is one of the first ones um we had a, a hotel just outside oban about five miles away and there were some lads usually drinking there quite regularly and uh, they were they, they were the rough crowd from the east end of London. They got hold of the very last Scottish steam drifter in existence, uh, long past her sailing at fishing days. You know, she was just an old rust bucket, really, but a beautiful old relic as far as I was concerned. And um, they offered me a job. And this is all done behind my parents' back, of course. So I applied horribly. And, uh, <laughs> so after that first exam, I, I went down to the pie shop as I was ordered by these lads. So I bought the pies and the iron brew and everything else and, and went and joined the ship and spent about 48 hours shoveling coal um, before the whole thing collapsed and uh, it all came to a sticky end. And that was the beginning of my maritime career. Needless to say, it was, I never got any pay, of course. And uh, there were three false starts like that in, in the Western Isles to do with ships. Uh, what was the last one on a fishing vessel, which I was just seasick for a week, um, before my parents said, OK, if you really want to do this, you know, we'll sort this properly. And so they wrote off to some pucker British companies and one of them, Blue Star Port Lines Limited, uh, based in Fenchurch Avenue in London, agreed to give me an interview um, and on the basis of that they signed me up as a navigating apprentice and so eventually after a lot of false starts I finally got away to sea for the princely sum of five pound a week and that was in 1970. <laughs> oh, fantastic what was it like then because I'm really interested of what it was like 16 year old on the sea I mean I'm assuming you had to pick up things very quickly because I think as we know the sea is not it is in, yeah you can't control the sea <laughs> Well, uh, in, the, in the initial um, experience, uh, by the way, I, you know, having lived in Kinsale in Southern Ireland, Lou in Cornwall and finally near Oban, you know, we were based on the sea from quite an early age. And so my dad had been really generous and, and bought me boats, you know, rowing boats and oh. things like that. So I had quite a bit of that kind of experience, which doesn't equate to being deep sea, of course. But, it's, you know, it's, the interest was there, if you like. Yeah. Um, in the in the early experiences, I was just dealing with uh, rather indifferent people. And looking back now, I think I realised that some of them were quite professional, others weren't. <laughs> there, was, there was a certain cowboy element uh, in some of these things. Um, so the, the learning experience was more about the things you shouldn't be doing or, or how to negotiate a wage before you actually start work or something of that nature. Mm. In terms of, you know, bends and hitches and splicing, I learned a lot of that in the scouts, actually, before I started going to sea. But when I joined Portline, I was with a professional company with real people, mm. and that was a real eye-opener. And I did three circumnavigations with Portline, um, and the first trip was, uh, you know, typical of the others. 
um, out from Liverpool, down via Cape Town, across to Australia, mm. offload everything that um, in those days still had Made in Britain stamped on it, mm. and then round uh, the Aussie coast discharging, and then in ballast across to New Zealand, uh, load all the meat and dairy produce, which before the EC wrecked all this, we, we all our stuff came back from there, that um, the Blue Star part of the company operated out of South America, so Dewhurst, the butchers, belonged to the same family, the, um, the Vestis, and, uh, and they had the shipping company as well. So the whole thing, you know, was kind of well sewn up, to be honest. Um, and then back across the Pacific from uh, Auckland, you know, with a full cargo of lamb and all the other stuff and, uh, and back home. So, um, and there were lots of things happened. I mean, it was a real eye opener. But I found that when I got back to Oban and, and sort of looked up my old school pals, there was a huge gulf already, mm. you know, after only literally less than six months away, um, where, you know, that experience had changed me quite a bit, really. Um, but, you know, I could talk all day about ships in the sea. Um, <laughs> I was in various capacities. I was navigating apprentice there. But on the third trip that we had an engineer on board. Um, and by this time, you know, I, was, I felt like I was an old hand. <laughs> I wasn't, of course. But um, he was talking to me about his experiences in the fishing industry out of Hull, which he'd, where he'd come from. And it captivated my imagination. And uh, there was something about those particular ships as well, which appealed to me. Um, we paid off in Hull on that voyage when we came back from uh, from New Zealand. And so uh, I asked Portline to release me, which they very generously did because they didn't have to. Mm. And and I went up the river to St Andrew's Dock and joined a fishing company called J. Marr and Sons Limited. And I spent the next three years fishing out of Hull. Um, and that was a completely different uh, way of life. Um, I'm going to swap to a, quite a nice suite of cabins with its own shower and all that <laughs> for, for a bunk in the forecastle of a, an old sidewinder, which was quite a come down in lots of ways. But what I what appealed to me wasn't just the adventurous way of life, which was extremely adventurous. Um, it was it was a camaraderie, if you want to call it that. It, mm. it was a precursor to what I'd find in the Royal Marines. Uh, you know, it, it relied entirely on teamwork. Um, there was a very clear hierarchy as well. There was no messing around. Mm. Um, it was a no-nonsense man's kind of world, if you like, you know, and yeah. uh, and that really appealed to me. And I was 17 when I sailed in the Swan Heather out of Hull. Mm. Um, but anyway, that was that. And then after that, because uh, we had a, that was my first war. That was a cod war. Um, <laughs> no shots were fired at me, by the way. You know, I heard about it, to be honest. Although you could see the writing on the wall from the industry point of view, which was very sad. Um, then I went into the, the home trade on, mm. on coastal ships, but... You could still in those days get a job on the bridge as a second mate, for example, yeah. uh, without a ticket, uh, provided the company felt you had what was required. You couldn't go deep sea without a proper qualification. It was called a second mate's foreign going certificate. Um, that was what I was supposed to be, you know, sitting after four years in apprentice. Um, but I anyway, knew I got the job uncertificated and that, that took me all around the British Isles and the home, mm. you know, the, 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 um, the continent. And I, was, mm. was, I enjoyed that. Different kind of people and, yeah. and very different kind of way of life, to be honest. Uh, and then a few more deep sea trips. The most memorable one was on the oldest ship under Lloyd's Register at the time. She was called the John W. Mackay. She was an ancient cable layer that belonged to commercial cable company. And um, when you look at photographs, I know she's still afloat, but she was not many years ago. I think she was built in 1922. Mm. Um, steam reciprocating as well. That's something else. You know, yeah, steam engines on ships are fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've sailed on Don't three get steamers. Them started. Don't get them started. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not a train spotter, but we talked talk about triple expansions, steam reciprocating, then you've got me. Um, and that was a trip. That was three months on that ship down to the down here, down to the med to layer cable and things like that. But of course, I'd also fallen in love uh, and that does tend to complicate issues. And so uh, eventually I gave up the sea and came ashore 
um, but couldn't find satisfaction in any of the sort of factory type, you know, uh, labouring type jobs I was suited for or could do really. Mm. Um, and eventually that led me to joining the Royal Marines. But um, oh, wow. that's another story, really. Oh, well, that's a story I now want to go and hear. So the reason you were joining was because um, you uh, a girlfriend or fiance, you know, you decided to stop going and traveling around. So you were 22 years old then um, when you decided to go and join the Royal Marines. Um, it feels like you were already very well suited for it. You know, you, you talked about, you know, the hierarchy um, the, and the structure that you already had when you were at sea. How did you find it then, moving from um, your world into into this new world? Well, there were some changes. Um, just to give you the f full context without going on too much about it, we, we, we'd split up, my girlfriend and I. We'd lived together for a while mm. while I worked in a factory and all that stuff. Um, and then... It, for various reasons, it, it didn't work. And, and I'd worked myself down to a Coleman's assistant in Salt Ash, you know, and I thought one day I looked at myself. I was also a biker, as a very hairy biker, I don't know, you know, <laughs> chopped down Triumph and all that sort of thing. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, the rebel bit was probably getting a bit silly at that age, you know, starting it's about time you get serious, I think. But I was really conscious of the fact that my parents had spent a lot of money on good education for me and I was not meeting their expectations, although they never put any pressure on me at all. Hmm. So I think it was a feeling of general dissatisfaction. I just thought I'll join the army. Hmm. So I went along to the careers office. Uh, all three services were in Mayflower Street in Plymouth, probably still there, actually, I think. Um, and I walked into the army careers office and, and I was looking at leaflets on how to be a driver and a cook and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I had no concept of what the army was about. And I was kind of a bit disillusioned. I was thinking, well, where's a bit about sort of fighting people? And, you know, <laughs> I know it's naive, horribly naive, but if somebody had come up to me and said, so you want to be in the army, son, you know, and, and, and guided me a bit, I probably would have ended up in one of the, who knows what, you know, but most likely the infantry, I should think. But it didn't happen. So I walked out of there a little bit disillusioned, um, went past the RAF careers office, because even back then I felt if you can't fly Spitfires, there's no point in being in the RAF, um, <laughs> and, and carried on towards, and with one other level, I didn't think there'd be much chance of getting in anyway. And then I, I got to the Royal Navy one, and... I was just going to go right past it because I wasn't going to go back to sea again. But there was a poster in the window. And I knew instantly from my fishing days, it was Norway or somewhere like that. It was a fjord, you know, with covered in snow and, and, and black trees, if you like. But the center of the photograph was this small green boat that had clearly just come straight up a beach at full speed. You could see by the wake. And there was a bunch of guys in this thing. We were wearing all this white gear and they had these guns and, and also these green berries. And they were leaping over the bow. I mean, it was a really <laughs> aggressive, fantastic poster. It really caught my eye. So while I was looking at this, trying to work out, this is a strange thing for Matlow's to be doing. This old color sergeant looked over the poster and he sort of did that with his hand, like, you know, coming in, <laughs> come in for a wet. So I went and he said, so, so you want to be in the Royal Marines? I went, what's the Royal Marines? I've never heard of them. And he said, well, British Britain's commandos. And up that point, I just thought they were magazines, you know, Captain Hurricane, that sort of thing. So I was completely, uh, you know, wow, I'm blown away by this. And the next thing he said to me, so uh, what do you want, NATO? And I went, sorry, <laughs> NATO? what's NATO? He said, milk and two sugars. Ah, yes, yes, please. He said, right, sit down here and watch this. And he put this film on and 20 minutes later, that was it. I said, where do I sign? So, I mean, I, I was completely naive. I had no idea what I was joining up. The thoughts of where this can lead you to I do remember asking one question. I said, you know, I've been at sea all this time, but I've heard there's a problem in Northern Ireland. You know, I don't think about it, but is, is it likely that... He said, oh, no, no, it's very unlikely. So he played that one down. Yeah. So that, that, that was as far as my thinking about the serious implications of what I'm doing went. And yeah. three months later, I walked through the main gate at Limston. Um, 
As for the adjustment, yeah. the adjustment wasn't too difficult for me because I was 22 at boarding school and been at sea and all that stuff, you know, living away from home and kind of barrack type situation. Uh, and my biker friend said to me, you know, you're giving up your freedom. And I never really gave that any thought at all. And mm. to be honest, it, that's never been a factor as far as I'm concerned. You know, I think mm. once you make a decision, you know, you weighed up the pros and cons, which clearly I didn't do a great deal of, um, <laughs> you know, you go with it, don't you? And yeah. And I think that has really been a kind of a theme of my life in any case. I, there hasn't been a great deal of planning going on. You get a kind of an opportunity come up, a crossroads appears in life and you think, right, I go left or right, mm. make a quick decision. And that's the way you go and, mm. and, and never look back and, and never think, oh, it could have been better if I'd done this or that, because that's, that's pointless. So, so that's how I entered the Royal Marines with that kind of attitude. You know, let, let's just go for it and, and give it the best shot you can. Yeah. And that, it seemed to work. Oh, well, well, I mean, it seemed to work. And then some, um, like I went and said in, um, in the intro, I mean, we, we ask our guests how they found training. Um, we know how you found training. Um, you absolutely, you, um, you smashed it. You know I mean, I could obviously use a better, a better phrase there. <laughs> um, um, what was it like then for you training? We obviously know how it ended, ended up for you, um, winning such a high honor, but how did you find it? Well, I think like everybody else, um, to start with, it's an alien environment and the notion of having to literally obey all orders and, and that, that loss of freedom thing. But I didn't dwell on that. I just thought, right, you're here for it now. Go for it. I think there were a couple of points where you could get out. I can't remember what they were now, but let's say, for example, week five or something of that nature. I'm guessing now what it was. You know, you had the option to leave if it didn't suit you. They would try to talk you out of that, of course. But in the end, if you wanted to go and you were genuinely unsuitable, they'd let you go. But once you've gone past those points, you're really in. That's it. But uh, the, the, the significant thing for me was that very first night when we all swore our allegiance to you know, Her Majesty the Queen and her heirs and successors. Um, people often talk about, you know, uh, fighting for queen and country. Well, most servicemen would probably agree we don't actually join up for that reason. Um, but I think from that point onwards, it suddenly became an issue in my mind at the back of my brain. I thought, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, mm -hmm. there is an allegiance element to all this. So there was a kind of growing awareness of what you've joined, which is inevitable. Um, as for the actual physical requirement, um, when I'd, uh, you know, committed myself to joining up shortly afterwards, I went back to North Devon where I was living at the time uh, in, in digs and I got a job in a factory for a few months. Um, I got this blue card come from the post and, and it had uh, 10 matchstick men on it doing the 10 raw mean exercises. Well, at that point, I'd never heard of things like press ups, sit ups, burpees and all that stuff. Of course, I mean, everybody in the world knows them now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, it was completely new to me. So, uh, and of course, there was none of this really modern, fantastic sports gear you can get today. And so I went down to, uh, I think there was a sports shop where I bought a pair of tennis shorts and a pair of plimsolls. And I went for one run around the block and it was less than a quarter of a mile. And I was gasping because uh, I smoked a pipe by the, of course, I, I forgot to mention that when I started fishing, I started smoking a pipe as well. Of course, the classic. And, uh, <laughs> you, you got to really, haven't you? Anyway, uh, I thought, oh, I sod this, <laughs> you know, they'll sort me out when I get to Limson. I never bothered. So anyway, I turned up Limson having done not a single press up and, and run about 500 meters, I think, or staggered. So the very first run was out of the camp and uh, a short distance of, of about a mile, I suppose, down a thing called Heartbreak Lane. And we turned around and came back. And when we got back, there was sort of deep breathing. And as I put my thumbs on my nipples and started that deep breathing, I, I passed out. And I came to in a Land Rover going down to the sick bay. <laughs> and um, they put me straight in a cold bath and, and that sorted me out and that was it and that was that was my um the hump if you like that i got over and the only other thing i experienced physically was a thing called shin splints and this oh, was yeah. caused by a sort of um 
I forget the correct word now, but there's a muscle at the front of your shins. And obviously, as you're doing all this fizz, it, the muscle expands, but the sheath is encasing doesn't so easily. And that causes pain. And the only um, medical advice there was slacking a thing called your putties. We had these things wrapped around our ankles called putties. And, uh, and that was it. Otherwise, tough it out and crack on. So physically, I was very lucky. Um, but I think also all the sport I did at school, you know, toughened me up at that stage. So I, I, I was no different to anybody else, by the way. You know, we were all quite robust. And I look at the figures today of injuries, and I think they're much higher than I seem to remember them being. So, you know, perhaps society has moved so far now that, uh, you know, it's a bigger issue for people today than it used to be. Um, the, 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 the theoretical and the field craft and all that, I loved every bit of it. Absolutely loved it. It was, it was exactly what I was hoping to do. And it's, it's laughable now when you see pictures of what they used to call SEMO, Combat Equipment Marching Order, which is the old-fashioned webbing, which I think was designed in sort of 58, I believe, when I was about four. Um, by, by comparison with the modern stuff today, it does look like a, a, you know, ancient stuff. And yet that's what we went to war with in 82. Um, that's what I was trained on. And it seems natural to me. Um, so I think uh, I, I just accepted it. And when people moan about boots, I think, well, what was wrong with the DMS boot? It did, did me all right, you know. And, and so <laughs> likewise, we didn't have Gore-Tex, you know. So what's the big deal? You're going to get wet. You know you're going to get wet, you know, and so on. So the, the whole thing, the ethos of that Spartan attitude, which the yeah. first boarding school I went to definitely was built along those lines. Mm. You know, we never shut the windows in the dormitories. Uh, we, had, we used to run after the beagles in the winter in, in shorts in the snow in North, <laughs> North Staffordshire. We played rugger in the winter and cricket and athletics in the summer. You know, and, and, and the, the, the discipline was rigid by today's standards. Yeah. All of that stuff, you know, was great preparation for what eventually I found wasn't that different. It was just a bit yeah. more grown up. Um, but I think the other sobering thing was the day they put a real weapon in your hand. Mm. And, um, you know, throughout my childhood, I had air pistols and air rifles and things like that. It wasn't uncommon to go shooting birds and rabbits and things. It was nobody seemed to bat an eyelid in those days. And, of course, you had gamekeepers all over the country. And you, you often see the evidence of gamekeeper work and so on. Uh, and hunting was quite normal. So um, but when, when I actually held, a, in fact, it was a Sterling submachine gun, a nine millimeter sort of nasty little weapon. It was probably more dangerous to the user than it was to the enemy. That, that kind of focuses your mind on what you're actually mm. doing, you know. So there were a couple of points in in your development or progress where you start to change because of the nature of the training mm. um at the end we were all looking forward to the very end of course naturally and it culminates with an exercise which is designed to sort of test everything you've been taught at the same time to sort of really wear you down that little bit extra after six months you're already worn down pretty yeah. worn down but also you're extremely fit um so you can counteract that i think we were eating like trojans of course you know three and four meals a day wasn't enough um and then we go into the what's called the commando tests mm. and uh and that's the final part really where you you know you, you have a, a physical test you've got to crack and there's mm. a time element all that stuff and once you're through that you're then looking forward to joining a unit and i think the last two weeks we were hobbling around on feet that were wrecked for a little while and, and, and <laughs> polishing our parade boots and, and buffing up our blues and brasses and getting ready for the pass out parade which was the the final big event yeah so um it went very quickly you know and uh, everybody has a problem though my problem was on the tarzan course there's um a plank you run along and you leap over a gap into a net and i always seem to get this sort of refusal as i got to the end of the plank you know i had to turn around go back and really go for it you know and still refused <laughs> It was embarrassing, you know, because everything else had gone beautifully. But, but you know, later on when I was helping people in rehabilitation, I found that just about everybody had a problem of some sort. So no matter what 
your capabilities are, how great you feel you are, or sort of great is the wrong word, but you know, confident. Mm. Um, it'd be highly unlikely for anybody to go through training and we're finding some sort of a challenge at some point. Yeah, and and that's that's a really good experience to go through. Yeah. Well, I mean, it went so well for you. When were you told that you were the top recruit? When? How did they go about that conversation with you? And I mean, when did you hear that you know you've been awarded you know best young officer and you were getting the Royal Marine Sword of Honor? When? Well, when did that happen? Right. I just got to clarify a point here. Okay. I, I joined. I joined up as a recruit in 1976 on the 5th okay. of October, right? Okay. That's equivalent to like an army private or yeah. an army recruit, right? Same thing. Um, and that was the basic Royal Marine training, all right, mm. the six, 30 weeks. Yeah. At the end of it, um, for every troop that passes out of, uh, this is Royal Marine recruit troop, forget officers now, Yeah. basic, basic training. Every, every troop that passes out becomes a thing called a King squad in the last okay. two weeks. And if this troop has reached a certain standard, and there are people in that troop that merit it, they will hold a thing called a King's Badge Board hmm. and they will then interview the candidates and they will award a thing called a King's Badge to whoever they think is is, is the best. And that's what happened to me. Yeah. So there were three candidates in my case. Um, I think what got me through wasn't so much my superb military skills or my fantastic knowledge or anything of that hmm. nature. It was the fact that when I was ordered to left turn and, and quick march, I marched straight past the King's Badge Board because mm -hmm. nobody ordered me to halt. And I found <laughs> myself marking time in front of a blank wall for, while they all laughed quietly behind me. Um, so I, I think, you know, the slavish obedience to the last order was probably the thing that impressed them most. But um, the actual award, I didn't know anything about it until we were marching actually onto the parade ground. Yeah. And uh, the troop commander just whispered in my ear, by the way, you've got the King's Badge. Yeah. So uh, that was it, really. But a great honour. Um, and something that's worn in every uniform and every rank throughout your career. Mm -hmm. um, the Sword of Honour came four years later when I went back to Limston and went through officer training. So in 1980, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant and went back to Limston uh, and did that course as well. And that was a year long. Mm. Um, and the difference is that um, every officer batch has a Sword of Honour winner, but not every Royal Marine recruit has a King's, a King's Badgeman. So mm. you know, there's, there's differences basically. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Do you just mind quickly just explaining for our, our, view, um, our listeners a bit more what this sort of honour is? I think you've explained a bit there. Do you just mind expanding on it a little bit? Well, it's made by Wilkinson. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a proper sword. It's a, it's a great it's a prized possession, naturally. Um, I think the most significant thing is the word honour. Yeah. Um, it's got my name scratched on the blade and a few other things like that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a proper ceremonial sword, which I wore throughout my career whenever I was in our blue uniform. Mm. Um, it's in the bedroom right now. Um, yeah, it's as you get older, these things become more significant. At the time, you just think, well, that's nice. You know, well done. Thank you. Um, but don't make too big an issue about it. You know, I wasn't the only person that thought, um, you know, he was a candidate. Uh, actually, to be perfectly frank, I didn't really see it that way. Mm. Um, some people have alluded to the fact that, you know, you must have trained hard to get it. No, it, it was never in my mind. I was aware of it like I was the King's Badge, but, you know, I just yeah. focused on the job and just got on with it, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it just happened to happen. So um, it's not just a prize, though. It is It is a significant thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, but but I, it, it's hard to choose between the two, which has more meaning for me. I think that they're equal, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I'm just as proud of the King's Badge as I am of the, the Sword of Honour, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Scotty, did you want to? Um, thanks, Alex. Yeah, before we start, I've had a great um, privilege to listen to Andy speak 
uh, I would kindly invite you to the Defence Academy to talk about our realities of conflict. And Andy was one of the other guest speakers. And I remember sitting back in the audience and kind of Andy's story took us back as our listeners are going to hear now. But it's um, we became good friends and it's an honour to call Andy a friend because we keep in touch now and again or I'll, I'll give him a, a FaceTime out there in Ibiza as the sun's pouring down on his back and the rain's here in my face in Northern <laughs> Ireland. I'm not, not jealous one bit. But I'm loving it. What, what would like the, the audience or the listeners to have a listen about? I, uh, I've got to think of just rapid fire questions, Andy, just for about a minute. Um, some quick fire questions, some of the first answers that will come into your head. So I know that, that won't be too difficult for you. So um, we'll just go from there and see how we get on. Happy with that? Absolutely. Good. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? Here. Ibiza. What would you change about yourself if you could? Um, another three inches height would be useful. What really <laughs> makes you angry? Pretty much everything, if I don't control it. Good. What motivates you to work hard? Uh, probably my DNA, I should think. I don't take any credit for this. It's just the way I am. Good answer. What would you sing at a karaoke night? Uh, well, currently I'm just practicing uh, Wonderful Life by Black. Uh, you'll know it when you've, if you listen to it. It came out in the 70s, I think. Uh, lovely song. That's the one I'm learning at the moment. I play guitar, as you know. Well, if you want to sing to it later on in the podcast, that would be lovely. <laughs> We're all looking forward to that. I'll have to tune it first. <laughs> what makes you laugh the most? Pretty much everything. Uh, right now, I think Peter Kay's brilliant. There's probably newer comedians than him, but the more I listen to him, the funnier, the cleverer I think he is, to be honest. So anything that's clever. Happy days. Want Just to finish off then, um, diddly diddly, what is your proudest accomplishment to date? Oh, well, there's quite a few, actually, so I can't really give you one that stands out above all the others, but I think basically my family, uh, which is quite large now because I've been married twice, so two daughters and a son and three grandchildren and a, and a son-in-law as well, um, and a girlfriend that's just joined the, 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 the troupe recently in the last year or so. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, that's a strange thing to say because I didn't create them. I know I literally did, but you know what I mean? They're their own personalities. I'm proud of them as people as opposed to anything I've personally achieved. If you're talking about personal achievement, though, it's got to be the mountain way. Um, yeah. You know, there's, I've started that from scratch. And, and we are now up and running as, a, as an effective solution to uh, some some of the people who are suffering from complex military PTSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic, Annie. And what that's one of the things I really wanted to delve into. But we'll delve into that later on um, about the mountain way and the stuff. But it's both you and I have uh, suffered or still are suffering with the effects of of conflict. And one of the things that like when we were chatting in the Special Defence Academy, we had hundreds of colonels and above all tripping about but they were really interested in listening to what you and i had to say especially from a, a top senior ranking officer to uh, a corporal it didn't matter they wanted to hear our stories and i think mm. we told it in the right sort of tone to get the message across um i feel that we have starting to get a turn in the, the conversation people are starting to listen to us a bit more mental health is coming up quite prominently in all conversations and walks of life but it's been something that we've been banging the drum for about for quite a while and it's mm -hmm. good that people are sitting back and taking note 
Um, and talking about your family there, as you know, Give Us Time is a family charity and um, family and having that connection, having that connection and time to reflect and what has happened and how we can make the unity stronger. I think it's very mm. important. And I think that stands in your values as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, during my service, family wasn't top of the list. Got to be straight, honest about it. And you can, uh, it's a difficult dilemma, isn't it? Because you want to be good at everything. And I think it's fair to say that anybody that, you know, enters into a marriage contract particularly is committed, you know, to the family side of life. But the reality is, um, I got married to Jennifer in Barnstable on the 29th of July, 1978. And I was in 4-5 Commando up in Arbroath, the other end of the country. And the unit was a thing called Spearhead, which I think was something like 12 hours notice to move. And uh, the troop sergeant said to me, yes, you can go down. I was a Marine then before I became an officer. Uh, you can go to your wedding, but if I call you, you get back immediately. So I went down with one. I was allowed to take one Marine with me, a mate. And um, we got married on Saturday. And on the Sunday, we got on the train uh, back up to our broth. And we marched into our new married quarter Sunday evening. And before midnight, there was a knock on the door and the whole of the unit was recalled. And by breakfast time, I was on LSL heading out of Glasgow across to Belfast. And that was the reality of marriage. So I dumped my wife, who came from Singapore, incidentally, in a, in a country where not even the locals understand what's being said, you know, and she hadn't a clue where anything was or, you know, it, it was a shocking introduction to her. And sadly, in that same unit, four years later, when I came out of officer training, the unit was about to go to Northern Ireland again. And um, I, I went back to 4-5 because uh, I'd, I'd come out top of training. And, and so the CEO had the pick of you know, the YOs who'd just recently been, um, you know, completed training. Because uh, normally you wouldn't have done that. You know, you wouldn't have been expected to serve in the unit you were a Marine in previously, which makes obvious sense. But uh, it never created a problem. But the, the point I want to make is I joined the unit. We went down to Lydon Hives to start the training. I didn't actually have a troop at that point. And my wife was about to give birth to our first child. And the C this was 81 when, you know, the hunger strike was going on and all that stuff. And, and the CEO said it's going to be a tough tour. Uh, we're not going to repatriate anybody for co uh, compassionate reasons, except for a death in the family. He said, so I'm afraid I can't let you go back for the birth of your child, even though I haven't got a troop and there's no function for me. It was mm -hmm. a principal thing, you know. So I, you don't argue. Obviously, I just come out of training. It's yes or no, so three bags full, sir. So that was it. I had to accept <laughs> it. But she went through the birth of our child on her own. Oh, wow. So, so I mean, think of it from her point of view. So what point we're talking about here, the family thing, to be perfectly honest, the family did come second. And, and I think that was a contributing factor to the divorce eventually in the end, anyway, after 16 years. So, um, yeah, family is much more important now because I've got the opportunity to have a, a second stab at it and to get it right this time. Um, and I think I'm doing a lot better than I did the last time. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, and you are, mate, and you're a you're, you're total credit to your family. What we were just chatting about, we just touched on it there about heading to Belfast. Um, we're just going to ask you, we've talk, I've listened to you speak before, but if you can tell the listeners, what was your first tour like and how did you find it? Well, the first time, <laughs> excitement and fear. Uh, excitement that you're actually getting used for the job you've trained for. Mm. And the reality is that, you know, actually this could be very dangerous. Uh, of course, in the light of what younger blokes have been through recently in the Middle East, it has to be said that Northern Ireland was nowhere near the same. The, the level of incidents doesn't correspond in the slightest. 
but that makes no difference and i think it's a bit like comparing different forms of ptsd there's no there's no point in doing that and there's no point in comparing one conflict to another you know everybody goes through the same things regardless of what the conflict's like yeah so um to start with, it was a case of the training was good. You know, I mean, there was no question about it. We did training in the unit before we went to Lydenhithe. And when I went to the city, Belfast, well, it was all in Lydenhithe. But when I went to South Armagh, we also went to Norfolk as well and did a lot of rural training. So, that, you know, even more training. So I think by the time your, your boots hit the ground, you felt confident. No question about that. Mm. Um, as for the fear factor, well, you know, back then, um, 77, there had been quite a lot of deaths. Uh, soldiers and many civilians as well um, so you're aware of the reality here but you know once you get there you're so focused on the job of just getting it right ballooning for example you know multiple patrolling um, that the, the ratio of work was not as bad as it had been apparently in the early 70s before mm. my time but you know I'd heard stories then when it was mental to be honest but you know the accommodation was slightly improved I think uh, so we weren't suffering in that sense um, but nonetheless, the risk was real. And uh, we had a Marine killed in the unit in August. And, and that focuses the mind very much. But, you know, um, the, the attitude then in that place was very different to anything you could possibly have experienced anywhere else. It felt slightly odd or more than slightly odd, actually, when you reminded yourself you were in a British city. Yeah. You know, you, you could have been in London or Manchester or somewhere else, but you no, know, I actually happened to be in Belfast. Um, and that, that kind of felt odd. The whole thing about being in a civilian population as well, you know, with your finger on the trigger guard, but your safety, your cocking lever pulled out, your sight set at 300, the button, the shoulder, you know, you're there just waiting for that opportunity to appear. Um, I very quickly adopted it, you know, got into that groove immediately and, and never looked back. Um, and I've got to say that I actually enjoyed it. It was, it, it, in retrospect, there were mm. days when it was very boring, days when it was very wet and cold and miserable. Um, you kind of got used to the civilian population, that the hatred, but um, that at Spear Tour in 78 was uh, a lot shorter. We were in support of the 3rd Battalion Light Infantry, I think. Mm. And then in 81, we went back in our own right again, and the level of hatred had got worse because of the hunger strike thing. But, by the time we got there and um it was absolutely palpable you know the level of hatred was was uh, you could cut a knife cut it with a knife uh, and we had a lot of incidents in that tour as well so but you know i i know i will say one thing though after that that third occasion i think the bubble burst because i in in the first occasion you're just we didn't even have the ecm kit in 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 77 the the anti-ied stuff wasn't as sophisticated as it later became the white um, and brown sifter or the antler yeah, that's right. I was trying to remember the names. That's right. Sifty, yeah. yeah. And we had chimps as well, I think, later on in South Armour in 88, I believe. They all had these coats. I don't know if it was there as well. We used to have the, was it a VJ, Violent Joker? It used to Joker, beat, yes. Beat, yes. Like, I don't know, Rupert will probably mention that as well. But yeah, every time you used to go near a fence line or a wire or a cable, the thing. <laughs> well, I don't want to give too much away publicly here because uh, I think, um, you know, certain ears are still listening. But um, bottom line is, uh, you know, the, the, that whole conflict developed like any long time conflict does. If you look at the history of the Battle of the Atlantic, you can see mm. how the U-boats in the early days had a great time. And then, you know, the Allies got their act together with sonar and, and ASDIC and things like that and, and tit for tat sort of stuff. Yeah. A very much similar thing happened here between us and, and, the, and the paramilitaries. You know, they, they learned from our experiences and we learned from their sort of thing. 
Um, but that that took a while before that sort of thinking was in my mind. And that very first tour, you're just literally getting to grips with it. And then you get to that mm. point where you feel you're confident and you don't need to be told what to do anymore. And, and, and people aren't looking at you from the point of view, are you the weak link? They're mm. now thinking, I can trust you. And that's a good feeling. But then the real fear comes when you get to about the, the midpoint, when you get too mm. complacent. Yeah. And then you get this sudden shot of, oh, shit, you know, I should have been covering that arc. Or, or you stood too long in a street corner or your fire position has been used by 100 other people previously. And then you start looking at every potential IED. And that's where the paranoia creeps in, which is a, a big part of what I call complex military PTSD. I mean, I, even out here, it, it's not a situation now. But when I first came ashore, I could see firing points and I look at vehicles and I look at, uh, you know, manhole covers and culverts and things like that with a bit of that still in my mind. It hadn't totally taken over, but it was still a residue there. And that's all because of that, those experiences, you know, I mean, two and a half years patrolling in that environment mm. um, is bound to, you know, create a, a mental sort of outlook, if you like, which you can't really undo easily. No, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Andy. And I think I've, we all kind of have a, a taste of that it's the old five meter rule when you go to ground as you know in Northern Ireland you're checking sort your five meter round about you and if you're there for a couple of more minutes you have to extend that or then you have to dash towards another position but you're looking all over but still now exactly the same you still look under vehicles and round corners we got really good at looking around corners for some reason um it was quite a skill in a way <laughs> but again too looking out through reflections of car windows and shop windows and other bits and bobs, we all t we all still tend to do that. But yeah, Andy, yeah, back in those days, it was pretty brutal. Um, and as you mentioned when you were talking, we got on to chatting about the RUC and how uh, you portray them as some of the bravest people that you've ever worked with and seen and stuff too. And what was that like working with they guys? Well, I don't really remember them in the early days, but the 81 was the first experience I can talk about, which really made an impact on me. And um, the day we arrived in province, I think, I honestly forgot which one it was now, one of the hunger strikers had just died and, and the city was in uproar. And part of our TAOR was an area called the Divis Flats. Yeah. And the Divis Flats was a modern construction, um, you know. That's still there. Well, I know the tower's still there, and I, I, possibly something else, but I think most of it's pretty gone now. But yes. um, the the unit we took over from had lost control, and they couldn't get back in. And and it was more of a an Inla rather than a Pyra stronghold. It was Irish National Liberation Army, and, and you could describe them as being more rabid than the most rabid dog you've ever met. So uh, we had an OP on top of the tower that was sort of overlooking the whole thing, but that was that was part of the our responsibility. But um, you know, their effectiveness was well understood by the enemy and the enemy used to taunt them all the time. They used to zero weapons in front of them and all sorts of things like that. Um, anyway, they'd lost control and uh, there was a funeral of one going on in the Milltown Cemetery. And so part of the unit um, went straight there. Um, but at the same time, in our TAOR, the Falls Road bit, um, the commander of H Division, which was the RUC division we were in, um, decided we're going to retake the Divis Flats. So we basically arrived in the camp, North Hard Street Mill, were issued with our ammunition and flak jackets and stuff like that and turned around and went straight out again. And there was a procession of pigs. Didn't go very far, of course. It's only a short distance. Yep. Uh, we went to a little place called Ard Moulin Avenue, which was like a, the closest dead ground to the flats. Because at that time, they were levelling the old lower falls. And so all those old buildings, which were originally attacked at the very beginning in 69 by the UVF, um, 
they were all being pulled down. So there was a lot of open ground around the divots. There was no covered mm. route in. You couldn't just sneak up to the divots. Uh, and this was the closest we get to it. Uh, it then became almost farcical. And it really was a, a, a bizarre experience. Um, we drove these pigs out into a big circle, more or less on the Falls Road, uh, which ran straight between us and the Divis Flats. And uh, and the firing started. Uh, it wasn't mm. heavy firing, just the odd round. Um, but we were definitely being engaged. But we were looking at about 9,000 people, all mm. screaming their heads off, all jammed into, I think it was called Whitehall, that particular block complex. And they were on three levels. Uh, and there was just you know, naked hatred. Um, and we couldn't return fire, obviously. You certainly couldn't identify anything. So, I mean, it was a stalemate position. Um, and then some some of the local youths started using our tactics against us, and we saw this phalanx of shields coming out of the divis towards us. Now, what what exactly they were expecting to do, I don't really know. Out of frustration, the RUC drove a thing called a hotspur, which was a sort of armoured Land Rover, that's similar to our things, but not really armoured, to be honest. Um, drove this at the, at the flats in some sort of desperate act of frustration. I don't think it achieved anything. They came under fire. It turned around and came back, and we all withdrew back into our Moulin Avenue. And when the back of this thing opened, two IEC constables got out, looking a bit white and shaken because there was bullet holes. And then a woman police constable got out, and uh, she looked really cool. And she just opened her compact. She checked her magazine on her SMG. She opened her compact. She did her lips. And <laughs> And that made us all feel about two inches high, you know. So that was my real impression of the RUC. But we had a constable attached to us who was actually a Catholic. And I had great respect for this guy. His name was Morris. And uh, he was a proper policeman, you know. And it, it was, it, you felt like you were doing a proper job because, you know, he, he took his job seriously. But, you know, they had a thing called ODC in those days, Ordinary Decent Crime, to differentiate from terrorist activity. So ODC was, you know, not having a tax license on your car, that sort of thing. And, and Morris was always trying to sort of, you know, um, carry out his policing duties as opposed to his sort of paramilitary duties but halfway through that tour um primacy shifted from the army to the RUC and up to that point um you know the army drove operations and, and all that stuff and immediately after that change the RUC took over in that role uh, and that had a significant change as well so my view of the RUC has always been a very high regard for them um but where I saw them very much similar to ourselves was in Cross McGlen in South Omar we had two coppers down there, Marty and Trevor, I think they're called. And to all intents and purposes, they were just the same as us. Really good yeah. blokes. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of them have paid the ultimate price. Oh, wow. I mean, moving forward a bit, Andy. So you were awarded a General Officer's Commanding Commendation for your work in Northern Ireland. Um, when was that awarded to you? Uh, 1988. 1988 so yeah. was this when you, so you were now in charge of in charge of people now what how different is that is that mindset well i'd had a year's training yeah. a pretty good training um some might say some of the best training actually so uh and of course the ultimate leadership challenge was the falklands war which happened in 82 yeah um i'd been in charge of troops more or less consistently since coming out of training whether it was troops I was actually training in a training environment, so not operational, or as on this occasion, you know, actually on operations. Mm. So um, the shift from uh, being a Marine to being an officer, well, after a year's training, you know, you, you forget about the Marine, but I mean, it yeah. was a great advantage to have all the basic skills and to know about the Corps and all that sort of thing. Uh, but really, you know, it, it, it was just a foundation. 
um, by the time I came out of training, the command element was well and truly sorted. So there was there was no real issues there at all. It was it was felt quite natural to me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. So this is the end of part one. So thank you everyone for listening to part one of our of the Give Us Time podcast. Um, we're going to be returning next week with part two. Um, during part two, we'll, we'll be talking with Andy about the Falklands War. Um, and about um, dealing with PTSD, his recovery, and how he started the Mountain Way charity. So make sure to like and subscribe to give us time um, so you don't miss it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you.